so long man uh yeah it has been a long we took a little break a paleo nerd break and it's uh great to be back because we have some oh man some awesome stuff to talk about oh today. we have really cool people coming up and things to talk about but yeah it was much needed because you know doing the podcast it's it's a lot well, we were fun. doing it well we were doing it every week and we had deadlines and i had to edit and you had to do artwork and then i, I had to go to... traveling i went traveling yeah. so yeah you know. yeah so here we are. Great. We're back. We're back, and uh, we've got some episodes coming up of some really awesome paleontologists and some highfalutin people in the scientific community. So some uh, heavy hitters, heavy, heavy hitters, heavy hitters coming up. Yeah, yeah. So I'm back in the studio, and I'm having a good time. You know what I'm doing, Dave? Drawing. I'm drawing, painting, drawing, and I'm, painting. <laughs> I'm doing another one of my pattern drawings. You actually own one of my pattern drawings. I oh. did ammonites. Yeah, the ammonites. Oh, you're yeah. doing a pattern. So that's like uh, that's like a wallpaper that you yeah. can tie. Oh, wow. So this has been many decades. I've just Every now and then I get some time and do another pattern. And I plan to finish up all these patterns. This is maybe the second to last one. And what is and, it of? And then I'm, I'm going to do release the patterns into the world and, you know, as different things. But this one is I'm drawing plankton. Oh, <laughs> oh, you mean like Ernest Henkel plankton? <laughs> Yeah, 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 kind of like that. Ernest Haeckel, whatever. Yeah, Haeckel was uh, an evolutionary biologist, a German dude. But anyways, I have been diving deep into plankton, so to speak, and uh, well, they're the most things. amazing structures, and they're translucent, yeah. and they have spikes, and they have coils, and and there's is... the two basic kind, the yeah. phytoplankton and the right. zooplankton. So okay. one are the plants and one are the animals. Oh, right. So zooplankton and phytoplankton. And here's one thing I'd learned, man, that kind of blew my mind. And this is what's fun is that when I do these drawings, I like to study up. I get an expert or two to stop by or I call them up and I talk about things. But is a barnacle more closely related to a shrimp or to a clam? Clam. Got it wrong. No way. You mean it's yeah. a crustacean? A barnacle is a crustacean? Yeah, or... basically, basically think about it as a shrimp that just said, eh, why should I keep going around? You know, they're very closely related to the shrimp. It's like a shrimp that Because parches... when you look in a barnacle, you can see a little kind of mouth in there, like a little yeah. clam mouth. Yeah, and what these these are these are crustaceans that like in their larval stage are swimming around. They have one like eye in the right. middle and, and they're like looking around. There are monoclops. Yeah, monoclops. <laughs> and then they find, and they look so bizarre, like some alien spaceship. And then they decide to park themselves in a rock and they kind of build their little fort around them. Wow. I never And they knew have that. their little filter feeders. But then get this this is sort of the R rated thing about right. it, or maybe the X rated. How do they, they have sex? Well, they have to be able to be close enough to another barnacle to be able to reach over with their private bits. Right. And inseminate them. Wow. But they have both. But they have to be within distance of each other. So they have to be in a, well, you know. Like on a pier. Well, when you see a pier, there's all these barnacles. They're covered. But they're what yeah. they're doing is, that you know, they're hanging out. They're filter feeding. And then when they, the mood strikes, they. Right. And it's six times their body length, dude. Really? So, so yeah. do they have the long, is it bigger? They, they, they do. They, they, bigger. they uh, yeah. An Argentine duck, like John Long's book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, in relation yeah. to body. 
like the most incredible length of any. And you're talking about a, a, a barnacle penis. Yeah, I am. Okay. Uh, we, this is a science show. We can say that. <laughs> <laughs> so I learned that. It just kind of blew my mind. That's brilliant. So, so are you so. drawing the uh, larval stage in your plankton yeah, wallpaper? Yeah, yeah. And actually, you know, anything that uh, can't swim against the tide, that's what plankton is. So jellyfish oh. are... Uh, but then our larval fish, I got to throw the, you know, I have a vertebrate bias since I kind of have a hint of a backbone. And then also learning, too, that we are basically the spawn of sea squirts. Right, uh, right. But we'll get into that on another yeah. episode. Yeah. We have some well, experts you know coming up. So. Can you look up a plankton expert? Because that would be an awesome, because, the you know, they're the bottom of the food chain. And without them, the planet dies. Right. Uh, oxygen, basically, half the yeah. oxygen in the planet, almost half the oxygen is from the ocean. But they also goes... are uh, uh, carbon sinks and uh, yes. creators yes. of oil. Yes. So, yes. they, you know, their dead bodies form, some of them form oil. Yep, yep. And as wow. we know, you know, like um, the chalk cliffs of Kansas are basically plankton. And yeah. the white cliffs of Dover are plankton. Yeah. They yeah. are coccolithophores. And the, the, little stick, the little stick you do your alphabet with on right. the blackboard is made of coccolithophores. Coccolithophores. Wow. Okay. Anyways, so uh, that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, me, real quickly, I've been, uh, since I'm an empty nester, I've gotten back full scale into my radio control model airplanes. I mean, full on. There's a local flying field uh, five minutes from my house where I've met an amazing bunch of guys. Radio control nerds like Radio yourself. control nerds. Yeah, but check it out. Most of them are engineers and aviation experts from the days of the 50s and 60s, rocket and space exploration and aircraft engineer developments. And these guys, that was their careers. And uh, it's, it's an amazing wealth of knowledge. So but you guys we went, fly your little airplanes around? Oh, they ain't little. Oh, they ain't little. Some of All them right. have six, eight-foot wingspans and look exactly like the real thing, a quarter scale. I have a quarter scale of a Spitfire, hmm. a British Spitfire, which is amazing. It's got an electric motor and flies at about 120 miles an hour. So wow. with retractable landing gear. I mean, these things are, uh, if you were to say they're toys, uh, you, you would make all the gentlemen out there cry. Is it all gentlemen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the is, it, gentlemen. is it is it a dude thing or is are there? Yeah, are there... sadly, there's no women really. Uh, but I think that's the nature of this hobby, and everybody uh, could be my grandpa. But I did huh. go to a. That's um, called the Ventura Comets. That's the name of the group, and I'm a member. We had a meeting on a Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at a local rec center, and I haven't been to a seven o'clock meeting since Boy Scouts. Since Alanon. Yeah, since Alan on, that's right. So anyway, that's what I've been doing. It's been a lot of fun. Radio control airplane. Wow, cool. So I'm really excited today for our guest. I've been lucky enough to meet our guest a couple times over really? the years. Oh, you've met him. Well, yeah, in passing, but I've also called him up on the phone when I need sure. some guidance and things. But uh, sure. we're talking about Jim Kirkland. Right, who currently uh, is the Utah State Paleontologist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like the dinosaur man. Like, yeah. you want to talk dinosaurs. I was, I was wondering, actually, you know, Utah's got some of the best trilobites in the world. If I could talk to Jim about getting a trilobite permit, but it's probably not really a, even on his radar. But <laughs> Well, they have, the, they have, like, the best collection of dinosaurs on the planet. Utah they do. has everything. Without a doubt. Let's let's put him to the test. He's, he says the Brits have a good fossil record, yeah. too, but 
Yeah, but he said, on, but not as good as Utah, though. I mean, Utah yeah. really covers, uh, you know, everything, but mostly the Jurassic and uh, Cretaceous are, are where all the dinosaurs and fish are found. And I'm blown away by his geologic maps and stratigraphy that he's created. He's an amazing geologist as well. And how many papers does he have on ResearchGate? Um, 197. 197 a jillion citations you know all that kind of stuff it is prolific the amount of research and, and publications he's contributed to the scientific community it's it's phenomenal and I, that's going to be my question to him is going to be based on that i want to identify i identify with him already because he's the same vintage as me he was born in the great year of 1954 and oh, right right he says it all started with the dinosaur toy set and I'm pretty sure we got the same set. So I kind of want to I want to ask him about that, and then we'll dive right into Dino. Great, great. Well, let's uh, give uh, Jim Kirkland, or James. I think it's just Jim, right? Just call yeah. him Jim. Yeah, he's, right. he goes by Jim. Yeah, Jim Besides Kirkland. the papers, James Kirkland, but yeah. Dr. Jim Kirkland. Oh, he's a doctor. He has a PhD, yes, sir. Oh, fantastic. He got to yes. be. Yeah. All right, let's call Jim. Hey, Dave, meet Jim Kirkland, state paleontologist of Utah with the Utah Geological Survey and a self-described paleo cheerleader for the entire state of Utah. So, Jim, it is so good to see you again, my friend, and meet my friend Dave. Hey, Dave, good to meet you. Oh, pleasure. Come, I... come visit us sometime. Oh, I'm, believe me, I'm, le <laughs> I'm going to, after this interview, I'm out the door and heading to Utah. So, uh, but the real question is, Jim, are you a paleo nerd? Oh, utterly. <laughs> I mean, when, when Ray's picture of Paleo Nerds came out, I'm like, that's me. That's me. You know, <laughs> you know Jim, I, I relate to you on well many levels, but uh, whenever I meet someone else who's born in the great year of 1954, and especially one who's a dino nerd like you and I, we, we have to share the same kind of genetic, um, historic DNA. And I remember I was reading up on you uh, that there was this pivotal point uh, in your young life when dad gave you a dinosaur set of toys. And I think I got the same set because I think that's what locked it in for me. How about you? 1959, the, you know, the big eight, uh, you know, Tyrannosaurus, Trachodon, uh, Allosaurus. I have that whole uh, set, dude. Yeah, and then there were playing cards after that, and then they, they you know, they, they, and also what happened too is they started to having. There was a little dino wave back then. People kind of forget this before Jurassic Park, but dinosaur toys came in cereal boxes. Remember that? Oh yeah, and that oh, locked and, it in for me too. <laughs> oh yeah, Red Rose Tea had little dinosaur cards. Really, collected them all. Wow. I, I mean, it I kills didn't know that. me that I don't know where that collection is now. <laughs> well, so you you were in love with dinosaurs from the get go. You were that young kid, like I was. You could say all the dinosaur names, and everybody was impressed. And it was you wanted to be a paleontologist your whole life. Oh yeah, I was telling people that when I was five. Wow. I mean, the neighbors. I'd be walking down the street, and they say, "Ask them any question." Really. <laughs> But someone gave you some bad advice on what school to go to. That's Isn't right. that true? Oh. High school, high school was interesting. They, they didn't know what to do with me there. You know, this is in New England, pretty far from, you know, the, the fossil fields. So my guidance counselor, you know, what's paleontology? Going through her book. Oh, it's a subdiscipline of geology. Uh, going through the book. Where do you study geology? Oh, schools of mines. So I ended <laughs> up going to the New Mexico School of Mines, basically the, 
you know, south it was warm, it was cold winter in New England, uh, but it really did, uh, it did me good. It just ripped the Band-Aid off for being a New Englander and made me a Westerner. But, <laughs> so, but that's a great discipline, though, studying geology. You, you were forced yeah. to study geology rather than paleontology, but you can't know paleontology without uh, being well-versed in geology. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm a biostratigrapher. You know, if, if you have people say, you know, what what is your specialty? And I date rocks using fossils. I just have particularly big index fossils <laughs> as opposed to forams. So biostratigraphy, to, for the layman, is basically the animals that live in a certain in the layers. level. In the layer, right? Yeah, yeah, because basically as we've studied the history of life, uh, and this is what was the founding of geology, you know, William Stratus Smith, who invented the science of biostratigraphy over 200 years ago, made the first geologic map in the world, you know, sometimes referred to as the map that changed yeah, the right, world. Yeah. Uh, but uh, basically, animals live for a fairly short time interval. And if when a new taxon appears, it's able to get around quickly, uh, you know, that short time interval is going to approach a uh, you know, a horizontal layer, and we can use that to date things. Other things, they appear someplace, migrate over, you know, hundreds of thousands of years to another place, you know, and it has an irregular distribution in time and space. But the things we work on, we want to have taxa that spread out rapidly. Dinosaurs have long legs. They can walk pretty fast if they're in an interconnected area. And I'm using dinosaurs to date rocks instead of the marine fossils that I was trained on. Right. You know, that's one of the things I learned early on as I kind of came back to paleontology in my, my adult years. I used to assume that, like, you know, T-Rex is from the Cretaceous. So for me, it was mm. all of the Cretaceous. And it took a while to realize, oh, wait, no, T-Rex was only around for, you know, you're lucky to have a species that lives, that lasts for a million years, right? I mean, that's remarkable, yeah, pretty right? Pretty much all species where we have temporal controls, good dating, which Western U.S. is real good for that. Nothing survived. No species goes for more than half a million years. Half a million. And certainly, you know, genera generally don't go more than a million years. Hmm. But you look at things like iguanodon, you know, if there was anything like iguanodon found anywhere on the planet for a long time, for a hundred years, they'd call it iguanodon. Right. Uh, same with Megalosaurus. You know, Megalosaurus was, you know, in, intercontinental and through almost the entire Mesozoic for any big theropod that we weren't really sure where it fit. So that would be a junk taxon. as Yeah, as and there say. was a bunch of them. Right. And in recent years, we've straightened this stuff out. Iguanodon has been culled down to Iguanodon bernasartensis from Belgium as the type material. In, in relation to dating, they use zircon. Uh, which is almost indestructible. But I was under the impression zircon is formed in igneous rock. But yeah. So how do you date something, for example, in the Cedar Mountain Formation using zircon? Is that because there was uh, lavas and intrusions at that time? Mainly we're getting it probably from volcanic ashes, from volcanic oh. explosions. And for this time interval that I'm, I focus on, uh, Southern California, southwestern uh, parts of Nevada. And there, there are some pretty big volcanic areas. These are island chains like Japan that were per periodically colliding into Western North America and leading to coastal volcanics down in that part of the world. Uh, and those ashes, those zircons come down 
to get reworked, uh, reworked. So, you know, we use detrital zircons to get maximum ages on things because it has to be there. So they're to, Jurassic the and Cretaceous zircons then formed. Absolutely. Right, right. Yeah, we have, uh, in the, on the Colorado Plateau, we got a lot of volcanic ashes. I mean, there's some intervals that I would, you know, uh, I'm pretty desperate to get a good date on, right. but uh, we have great dates on a lot of intervals. I mean, dates that are within, say, 100,000, a couple hundred thousand years. Wow. This is extraordinary compared to what I grew up with. Jim, let me ask you this. Um, when you're digging in a site, you find the bones of a big theropod or a big sauropod. Those volcanic ashes... Are they above or below, or are they in there with the bones? Or you That's how you dial it in, is above and below. How, how does that work? Well, detrital zircons, you know, they get reworked into the beds. Uh, so sand, you know, if you pick up any chunk of sandstone, it's going to have thousands of zircons okay. in it, going all the way back to the Precambrian. They get recycled forever. Uh, but the youngest ones are going to be pretty close to it. And we've started to do some work, my colleagues at the University of Kansas, been working with me for many years on this stuff, uh, looking for zircons in paleosols, you know, soils. And soils can take thousands of years to form, so there's a good chance that soil's going to catch an ash on top of it, and then burrowing and insect activity, rooting, we'll work it into the soil. Uh, so when we extract zircons out of that, we're starting to realize we're starting to get some really good dates on terrestrial rocks just out of detrital zircons in ancient soil. But how do you tell the zircons that aren't mixed in from the Precambrian to the ones from, you know, the Albion in, in early Cretaceous? Well, they're going to be pristine. You know, the old Precambrian ones generally are broken, rounded to some degree, oh, right, up right. in brownish, reddish color. And the new ones are needles. Oh, right. You know, really pretty, you know, maybe clean breaks on some of them, but they're, they're really pristine. Uh, and we have ashes as well. You know, we do find ponds with an ash in them, and they're you know that's gold. That's, you know, that's yeah, golden that's spikes. The stuff. <laughs> that's cool. Well, let me ask you this. Well, I've I've seen lots of videos. Dave's been watching lots of videos. The best spot in the world for dinosaurs is Utah. True or false? <laughs> it's it's true. We don't have the. I'm still waiting for a feathered dinosaur. Oh. You know, we have some lakes that I'd love to be able to sick a hundred people on. I'm sure they're there, oh, really? you know, where we get good Yeah, but you have some arm bones with quill uh, dubs, Not right? in Utah yet. Oh. You know, oh. we have them for related animals. You know, we don't have them for, like, say, for Utah raptor. Right. You know, we don't have an ulna yet for Utah raptor oh. out of all the specimens. And there's probably parts of 12 skeletons that are reasonable. It's still not a lower arm. <laughs> which kind of drives me nuts. Regardless. That's a press release. You know, we show Utah raptor head feathers. We know it did. But science is such that you want to have some real data and, you know, shoot from the hips. Like, I'm sure it is. <laughs> well, you have a really, truly remarkable fossil record of dinosaurs, a continuous record. And uh, But actually, you've mentioned Utah raptor. I want to mention, I want it to dive right in. got me my job. <laughs> Let's, can you tell us a little bit of the story of uh, Utah Raptor, the discovery of Utah Raptor, and how it ties into Jurassic Park? There's a good story there. Well, in, in 1990, we were working on a, an early Cretaceous site with an armored dinosaur in it, a thing I named Gastonia. Uh, and lots of Gastonia material, tons of it. And we had a little theropod jaw with some teeth kind of buried under ribs and armor. 
And as I'm working on that, you know, because I'm the boss, so I get to work on things with teeth. <laughs> uh, someone yells over to me and says, Jim, Jim, I think I've got a kind of a weird cervical rib, you know, rib on the neck of an animal. I'm like, well, great. Have fun with it. <laughs> and I keep working. Well, yeah, I really want you to take a look. And this was on a hard limestone ledge, or, you know, with about a 20-foot drop right off the edge of where we were at. Okay, get up, go over there. And I look, and I'm looking at this thing, I see this little groove and what's exposed. And lay my head down the rock. And, Whoa, this is a laterally compressed claw. And it's only about a third of it sticking out of the rock at this point. So I, I want to see the rest of this. Ooh. And before we left that day, we had that thing collected. And a week later, I was at San Diego with that claw cast of it uh, at the SVP meeting in San Diego. This would have been in 1991. And uh, went in and showed it to John Ostrom. And, uh, and John immediately, you know, picks up his cast. You know how big this thing would have been? That would have been a foot long. And he just, it, he barely had a breath out of wow. him before he was swinging that claw around. <laughs> Slashing us all with it. <laughs> Remind our listeners uh, John Ostrom and his contribution to paleontology. Well, John was uh, really opened up the early early Cretaceous of North America, and in um, within the, that whole project, he discovered a a little beast called Dinonychus <laughs> that he was able to tie in with his research on uh, which the is a dromaeosaur, right? That's a velociraptor. Which is a dromaeosaur. Yeah. It was the third one. Uh, uh, described only number three mm. out of the history of describing dromaeosaurs, and he basically, because of his work and familiarity with Archaeopteryx, was able to see that this thing is really similar to Archaeopteryx: the pelvis, the wrist, you know, all these elements of the skeleton, and that just set the whole dinosaur renaissance going. You know, it was that discovery, and you know, immediately he was like, you know, these things might have feathers. And probably the high point of my whole career is I was actually one of the moderators of the dinosaur session at New York at the SVP meeting. And I was talking to John out in the hall, you know, uh, and Phil Curry and Dr. Yen uh, came in and uh, with this portfolio and they opened it up, showed John the first feathered dinosaur from China. Wow. And I Which got was proof. The that tears was proof. in John's eyes. He teared up. Uh, that's so on, cool. On seeing that, that's like I really do. I look at that high point of my entire career at that moment there. That is awesome. That is so cool to be to have seen that. So he must. That must have been quite a moment. Everybody just gathered around that fossil. Oh my God! There's feathers. Well, it's... there was only the four of us out there. Really? Wow. Yeah. It was just. I mean, it was you know big the big A M N H halls. It was a big space, and it was just the three of us looking at this thing. One thing I want to ask about dromaeosaurs, which to the layman is pretty much the velociraptor, the 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 lean machine, the human-sized lean machine. Although Utah, Utah raptor had a massive skull and is probably the uh -huh. biggest. And I think Jurassic Park did give the world, uh, I, I guess, made them sexy in a way. But their pubis bone goes down and to the back, whereas you look at a Tyrannosaurus, uh -huh. it either hangs down and a little bit leans to the front. So why? 
does their pubis bone, which is this great bone uh, that, that hangs down from the pelvis. Why is it, why does it go back? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, why it goes back. You know, if you look at birds, it's related to bird anatomy. But these, these animals, who probably did have flying ancestors. I mean, Utah raptor is probably secondarily flightless, uh, based on all we know about that family tree now. Uh, you know, it's a giant hellbird. You know? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but basically, uh, yeah, the way it comes back, and the boot only goes backwards. If you look at Tyrannosaurus, the boot goes fore and aft. Right. You know, uh, at the end of it, uh, you know, it's it's relative to muscle attack, maybe utilizing uh, the tail, uh, bringing, you know, the digest. They shorten their back a lot, you know, in these theropods. You know, Utah Raptors are remarkably short back. Birds do as well. Right. And basically, it's probably an aspect of pulling the digestive system back, you know, getting the center of gravity more over those hind legs. Oh, right. Uh, you know, for balance. Because these things were, they had a pretty sophisticated sense of balance. You know, the whole thing with the stiffened tail. Right. And the velociraptorines is almost certainly uh, for agility and balance while they're utilizing the foot. For other things than just holding down prey, I right. agree. Right, so right, right. They can hold down prey with it. You might be able to climb if they're small, but uh, they have incredible ability for balance. Well, the thing with that, um, the whole nerdy thing with Jurassic Park was that they were calling the raptors Velociraptor, which is basically mm -hmm. poodle-sized uh, creature. Oh, absolutely. And you, you actually came and they, they said, man, I won't do, let's do them big and let's have them, you know, ferocious. You, at just as the movie's coming out, you have, have found something as big, if not bigger than the raptors that are depicted. So all the nerds are going, now Velociraptor is this tiny thing, but you found the big, the one that validated Steven Spielberg, right? Yeah, it's about the, exactly the same size, you know. As the ones in the movies. Yeah, as the ones in the movie, it it really fits well, and you know Michael Crichton followed Greg Paul's lead, who synonymized Velociraptor with Deinonychus. Uh, you know, one's early Cretaceous, one's late Cretaceous, and are on two different continents. Right. We know that's like not going to happen. There's no way. But at the time, you know, it was it was reasonable to maybe lump because the ages weren't as known as well then. Uh, but basically. Uh, you know, it was based on Deinonychus, and they doubled its size. Right. And you found you the know, real but deal. But they called it Velociraptor yeah. incorrectly. How but are they avian dinosaurs? Or are they non-avian? No, these avian? things are secondarily flightless, yeah. in my opinion. Right, but are, so, do they, are they related to modern extant birds? Uh, well, they're not ancestral to them. Right. Uh, in fact, uh, Shared I think Utah Raptors Remind me how that works. Than... Remind me how that works. Birds are dinosaurs. Yeah. You're looking at a bush. Right. You know, you know, the tree of life. Right. The branch that includes Utah raptor and velociraptor also includes birds. Got it. And birds are tied. Now it's looking maybe a little closer to truodonts uh, than they are to velociraptor. Uh, but, you know, new data may show that. But it's a, a complicated bush. And we name things based on the branches. Right. So as we say, bats or mammals, you know. Uh, birds are dinosaurs, right? And they probably could be considered dinonychosaurs to be a little more specific. Uh, 
which include truodonts and dromaeosaurs. So right. I'm looking at the raptor family tree, and it looks like only Archaeopteryx is a direct descendant of birds. Yeah, well, it's very yeah, it's in it's the basic. branch. It's in that branch, yeah, it's we had very a, basic. Our previous guest, Jingmei O'Connor, was talking about the truodont uh, sure. link to it. Yeah, I, I think you know. I mean, birds are dinosaurs. They're out there. They, you know, they're all over the place. But tell me, with that wicked claw, that wicked claw mm -hmm. moment when you saw that wicked claw emerge, <laughs> can you can you tell me how a creature like that would use that wicked claw in real life? Have you really envisioned how it's how it functioned? I, I I've looked at it quite a bit, and uh, you know, basically, uh, you know, the old days we were saying thinking of it as slashing. You know, and I've I've got a cast, a resin cast of one that I utilize. That you know, we try to do a conservative reconstruction yes. of what the sheath would be like over the claw, life size claw, built it right over a cast of the claw. Uh, and then I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to jump on an elephant with this and try to kill it, and to, to puncture that thing through an elephant or to cut it down through the thick hide of an elephant, it, you know, it's it's plastic. I mean, keratin of similar density and consistency it's not steel right right and uh you know so i tend to think they're more for puncturing that somehow in the biomechanics these things could punch holes between the ribs but they're not cutting slashing so much you know they could maybe rip into the neck and do some things but uh basically i'm i'm looking at these things as punching holes uh into the side of an animal or meat hooks aren't they meat hooks well, they're shaped, they're, they've got a curve. They generally aren't amazingly recurved. Right. You know, not like the movie. The movie's too recurved. That wouldn't even function. But uh, if you look at a Utah Raptor claw, you know, the way they would kick out, I think that claw would basically, you know, be like a Bowie knife. And then, you know, you look at an old prison movie, you know, the guys with the shim, <laughs> you know, just jamming you, wham, 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 wham. And these things probably could strike, they pick up a cat. It doesn't want to be picked up. You know, they're slashing. <laughs> but the same thing, like kicking. That. You know, how many, how many punctures can they make into you before you can even react? Right, right. <laughs> wow. wow, that's a cool yeah. image. But they also can use, I mean, dromaeosaurs, you know, I said, you know, Deinonychus was number three. Utah Raptor was the sixth one ever described. And now we're close to 40. Wow. And probably four uh, the five subfamilies within the group, including the microraptorine, which flew, you know, and Anchiornis, which is at the base of birds, truodonts, flew, you know, the four-winged ones seem to be the ancestral morphology to that whole group of birds, truodonts, dromaeosaurs, uh, and, which is why I say they're secondarily flightless. Well, right. there's also a plan right now, you found a whole slab full of Utah Raptors, and now there's a Utah Raptor State Park in the works? Yeah, there's a, at the Dalton Wells site, a site that's been excavated by Brigham Young University since the 70s, off and on, and, you know, they probably have 30 years into it, at least 40 years of excavation there with thousands of bones. Wow. Including parts of eight Utah Raptors, you know, and it's exactly the same levels where we got the first Utah Raptor. Uh, because the way the rocks fold over Arches National Park, you know, it's the same layer as we were on the other side of the park, but at the same horizon, finding the, you know, the Utah Raptor I initially described. But I used parts from Dalton Wells as well as a, you know, you know, I identified it from day one as these are Utah Raptors as well. 
And a few miles from that, we found this site that we published as the first quicksand dinosaur mass mortality. And there's dozens of of raptor skeletons wow. in there, big ones that are clearly Utah raptor. We now know there's a Velociraptor with Utah raptor at this level because hmm. Utah raptor is a dromaeosaurine, one of the you know the families. Velociraptorines, dromaeosaurines. I see. Based on teeth, through the entire Cretaceous, both groups coexisted. Wow. Uh, through the entire Cretaceous, uh, and we know they existed at the level of Utah raptor because we got a tail that. Very much of Velociraptorine tail, and we got tails of Utahraptor, hmm. which are you know much more primitive, closer to what you'd expect in a bird uh, or see in Archaeopteryx or Truodonts, you know, which is interesting. Velociraptorines are more specialized, so they don't give rise to birds themselves. <laughs> in that uh, quicksand and the collection of uh, different individuals from juveniles to one adult, I believe. Yeah, um, we only have evidence for a big adult. Was there a kill? Is that a kill site? Was there a... Uh... We, we think there's an iguanodont, and there's actually two, a small one and a bigger one. that are pulled apart in there. We think they were attracted to those trapped animals. Oh, right, uh, but right. We, you know, we see babies that would be, oh, you know, a bit bigger than chickens. You know, right. they're certainly not hatchlings. Right. Then we got two-year-olds who are slightly bigger than velociraptorines. Bunch of the skeleton size ranges. Some intermediate stuff, but not where we can like pick a size from looking at the, the skeletons and then the adult. But we think it's a, a family group or a couple of family groups, and that's what makes up packs. So, if, know, in my mind, if they hunted in packs, uh, the, the evidence suggests they hunted in packs as multiple skeletons are found that way. Mm -hmm. Is there any evidence of extant animals, you know, like wolves, you know, which we visually we confirm they hunt in packs as we mm -hmm. see them? Uh, is it? Is there any? Uh, is there a wolf site anywhere? I mean, a, a modern wolf site that would go that you could say, "Oh, look, these animals hunt in packs because here they all are dead." In uh... yeah, I'm, I don't think we could tell that, you know, and I don't think we can prove pack hunting from associations. Got it. The thing with this site that's real interesting is the size segregation. You know that oh. we have, you know, small ones, then you know, three times bigger velociraptorine size things. Which suggests to me we're looking at different clutches, you know, because we're looking at a moment or close to a moment in time. Preserved. Sure. So what I my view is, and you know, going to do years of work. I'll be dead and gone, and they'll be, you know. Well, I love how you said you wish you could live for another hundred years yeah. to see what the next generation. <laughs> I want to see what we get out of that block. We we may have bacteria preserved in that block wow. on the bones. I mean, it's right. like there's some pretty remarkable stuff in that block. There's no doubt. But uh, the age segregation makes me think, you know, you have a pair of Utah raptors laying nest, 30 or so eggs, and the young follow them like ducklings, hmm. you know, and, and then they stay, and that's what forms the beginnings of a pack. A year later, another nest, 30 more young, you know, another year, 30 more young, you know, so you're almost to 100, or maybe you're at 100, you know. But of course, in a healthy population, two founding adults should really only need two surviving young. So, you know, with these giant numbers, and all these dinosaurs had lots of young, these things were cannon fodder. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because, you know, they were probably running among the, the plant eaters, stirred up the herds, so the big ones would be able to take them out. And the big ones aren't that fast. You know, when you look at the legs, they're massively constructed. You know, I always joke that this thing is the Arnold Schwarzenegger of dromaeosaurs. This thing is built to kick the side out of the barn. 
in Jurassic Park, not trying to sit there and dig its way under it, just kick the wall. <laughs> yeah, like that. So what, what what's this nesting site doing near quicksand? It seems like a well, bad place. Well, it's not a place. nesting site itself. Oh, okay. They're a nesting site somewhere. Nearby. This is just this family group following along, you know, and attracted to this and animals getting stuck. Uh -huh. and of course, quicksand, you don't uh, sink like in the Tarzan movies. You grab his finger. You know, you float. So, you know, quicksand's denser than you are. So if you're calm, you can sit there, float on. You might be stuck, but hopefully someone can pull you out before you die of starvation or other causes. And that's what happens with these animals. But the hydraulic head, the water coming up, and it's usually compaction that causes this stuff, the, you know, the water to boil up, bring the sand, churn it up. Uh, when that lays up, get, lets off, the thing collapses. And that's what buries everything. And, you know, what we're seeing in this site is, is it one big collapse event? And we can see the faults all around this mass of dinosaur skeletons that's collapsed right from where it probably was originally, probably 10, 15 feet down into the underlying paleosols. And, then, you know, you go to the edge of this mass and there's bone doesn't go anywhere from it. You know, it's a blob packed with skeletons. Mm. Is this a river yeah. or is this like the edge of Lake, uh, ancient Lake Dixie? Yeah, well, no, Lake Dixie. That's another thing. Early Jurassic. Yeah. Okay. Now we're calling it Lake Whitmore, to be politically okay. correct. We've changed the name. And we're going to get into those trackways at Lake Whitmore. But, uh, yeah, Lake Whitmore is the, the name we're using officially now. Anyway, you know, these animals were at the side of what we call Lake Madsen, uh, an area in the Paradox Basin that was subsiding. While everywhere else in North America, erosion was occurring in sediment bypass. So we have a unique thing. These animals will never be found anywhere else in North America, but Grant County, because of the geologic setting of it. What gave us arches gave us these dinosaurs. And that's the great this, salt deposits. Yeah, paradox. There are thousands of feet of salt there, and it never solidifies. Salt's always plastic. You pile rock on it, it squeezes and moves like toothpaste in the So it the causes ground. the other rock around it to fault and break and to, subside? To fold and fracture. So you look at Arches National Park, that's an uplifted salt anticline, and it's just fractured along there. And it's those sl slabs of fractured rock that give us the arches. Right. But as that was going up, the surrounding area was going down. Right. And, uh, and because it was going down, it collected sediment. For everywhere else in North America, sediment was just shedding across uh, the Rocky Mountain region. So we have a big unconformity. We thought that was in Utah, too. And it is. But in this area, we had local subsidence, Grand County, Utah, only right. place. Wow. And we you know, don't have just the oldest Cretaceous dinosaur fauna in North America. We have the two oldest dinosaurs. There's another fauna under the Utah raptor lair wow. with its probable ancestor, Yurgovuchia, and a number of other dinosaurs that are found nowhere else Say as well. Say that again? Yurgovuchia. Yurgovuchia. I love it. That's that? ute, ute for coyote. Oh, oh. <laughs> It sounds Slavic. I right. Know. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me ask you this um, before we jump into Lake Whitmore and the St. George site. Uh, is the Utah Raptor State Park uh, reality yet, or is that in the works? It's It's been funded. A lot of that money's going into infrastructure, developing campgrounds, okay. putting in water, you know, uh, uh, outhouses, which I'm a big outhouse fan. I'm a, I am too. I am too. Yeah, we 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 just have too many people, um, you know, using the backcountry, right? You know, yeah. irresponsibly. <laughs> I hear you, but but they're putting a lot. They're moving the whole road entrances into that area, 
because the only two roads that go into that place are in lousy locations relative to traffic. So they're putting all, they're putting millions into the infrastructure. But we're going to have a visitor center to start and hopefully raise new money. It's you know the Dalton Well site has thousands of bones, at least ten different kinds of dinosaurs unique to the region. Wow. Um, you know they'll never be found outside of the Arches region, uh, and it's right near pavement with an incredible viewshed of the LaSalle's and Arches National Park from up on the quarry. It's, so this it's is, a magnificent site. Yes, yeah, it's on the east side of the state, uh, north of Moab. Yeah, it's just north of Moab on that road that goes up to the highway. Beautiful. Uh, big ridge, uh, you know, within side of the road. Wow. Uh, you know, so it's an easily accessible site. And down below it, there was a Japanese isolation camp. Oh, uh, right. That'll also be interpreted. That's good. Uh, so it's it. There's more than one thing there, and they're going to put in a lot of camping because the Moab region is starving for campsites because it's so heavily utilized. Uh, so it's it's a good thing. I'm I'm really happy to see it. Uh, I'd like to see it in 50 years. <laughs> All this stuff is a process. Yeah, clock is ticking. Uh, St. George is much further along uh, in that process. I consider that my my crowning achievement. Yeah, let's 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 jump into that. What's what's the segue well, into in the Cedar Mountain Formation, which has been so productive. There are five sub-members of strata. There's the Buckhorn conglomerate. There's the oh. Yellow Cat Poison Strip, and that's named because of the uranium found in there. No, it's, well, it's, it's I think because alkaline waters oh, kill right, cattle right, and right. things come. Then there's know. a Ruby Ranch, and what I thought was so funny is the mustn't touch it. Oh, the butts untouched. So it, yeah. That's obviously, it sounds like a German word, but. Everybody's trying to figure out where that name came from. Yeah, but you shouldn't touch it. Don't touch I, it. Yeah, yeah, I think it was a board cartographer. Right. It's not an Indian word, as far as anyone right, can tell. Right, right. They've asked all the tribes. But you mustn't touch it. I'm telling you, don't <laughs> pick up that stone. You mustn't touch it. Okay, I did some Googling, and it turns out originally some cowboys called it must not touch it because the water was poisonous, and that became mustn't touch it. So, look, you know, these are stories. How much truth there is to them, we'll never know. And it's got one of the most diverse faunas in North America. There's over 100 taxa known from those rocks now. Wow, wow. You know, and it's the onset, you know, it actually dates the origins of Alaska. What? But really, you'll like this. Uh, yeah, by I, the I, first immigration of Asian animals into North America occur within the mustn't touch it. So, rocks in Utah date the origins of Alaska as accurately as dating uh, metamorphic terrains with the collision of a chunk of Canada into Rangrelia that formed the ancestral Brooks Range, you know, going into Asia, uh, is these rocks actually date that better because we get the first Asian animals piling showing in, up, leading to an immigration-induced uh, extinction of our local, at that time, endemic fauna. And you'd call that the Great Pacific Highway. Oh, indeed. I, and I think they came along the coast because I don't think they could have crossed the Brook Range to the North Slope uh, at the North Pole because you would have had a multi-mile high mountain range, clearly snow covered, <laughs> that uh, I think the animals went down along the Pacific Coast Highway before entering in around Vegas or so into the interior, which is why our ankylosaurs, our tyrannosaurs and the late Cretaceous have closer affinities to Asian stuff than they do to the Canadian stuff. Ah, 
Well, I, I'd love to. I'd love to oh, get. Yeah, we have a lot to learn. Just stay, huh. you know, just live forever, and we'll know a lot more. <laughs> well, I, I want to get into what I found so fascinating was the St. George Fossil Track site because that's remarkable. That represents moments in time. That's a Tuesday at three p.m. I mean, it's absolutely insane what you have discovered from every type of uh, flora and fauna to uh, a, an animal. Butt print, <laughs> the famous butt oh, print. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, tell us about the St. George site and uh, how it came to uh, be what it is today. Well, I got a call from this fellow by the name of Andrew Milner, who was in St. Uh, Cedar City, Utah. His wife was uh, uh, a professor there at Southern Utah University, and he was he he'd worked with the uh, National Museum of Canada when he was young. Worked five years in the Burgess Shale. As was a big trial bike guy until got into these tracks. Uh, he calls me up, I come down. The survey figured I'd bring some souvenir, you know, it was a construction site, bring some souvenir blocks with tracks back for our rock garden, and that'd be the end of it. And I met the Johnson family who owned the property, and Sheldon, his only thought was, how can I use this incredible gift uh, to support my community? This and is all the neighbors saying, oh, you're going to get rich. you got to get rich. The land this owner. Thing all right, what year? It was like, what can we do that would be good for our community? And because of that, and the hard work of his wife, Laverna, I mean, Laverna was the pit bull on getting funding for this thing long term. Uh, we have one of the most important uh, sites protected, really, in town. Think of it as St. George's La Brea. It's within the city limits there. You know, there's you know construction, the shopping center, schools all the way around it now. Wow. Uh, but it's not just one site. There's actually 17 track levels in the site. Whoa. The one main site, discovery site is a big sandbar on the side of what we now identify as Lake Whitmore, which hadn't been recognized that existed before this, this study. We knew there was lacustrine sediments in the area, but we didn't know anything. And this sandbar... You know, underneath it's where we got the tracks that, you know, really led to the place being established. But then we discovered the top was covered by these things, too. And on that upper surface of that bed, that sandbar, you know, there was a dinosaur walking along that surface, probably coming out of the water, because we also think these animals were eating fish. Uh, got some really good reasoning on that. Yeah. That this animal coming up sat down on the sandbar and left a... Uh, Impression showing its hands curved inward. Hands go in, not a, not down. They're curved inward. You can see the way the claws are hooking. You know, just rests its hands down there, and it rests its down its butt down on the ischial callosity. You wait, look wait, at well, wait, wait. the pubis. The ischial. Say that again. Hmm? The ischial. The ischial callosity. You're being you're being anatomically. <laughs> ischial callosity is what the butt. Yeah, basically this part of the butt. You know, tyrannosaurs sit on a different part of their pelvis. Right. You know, the big pubis. But these guys, it would have been the the, the back part of the hanging down bones up the pelvis. Right. Pubis goes forward, ischium goes back. And they would they were going down on the ischium, leaving this big round impression between the hind legs, which are folded down to the ankles. Right. We're seeing the metatarsals as well. And then when this animal got up, it stumbled and sat down again about <laughs> five, six inches in front of that, putting another ischial callosity mark down. No handprints in the second one, but another set of, of the feet. Then it got up and, and walks off for another 30 or 40 foot. 
put tail drags as it goes up over these erosional uh, sand uh, uh, mounds in the on the on the sandbar. Every time it goes uphill, the tail hits. <laughs> wow! Has anybody done an animation of this? No, they haven't. Uh, that would you know, be made so the Today cool show. to see. Yeah. In fact, they were going to have us extract the track, you know, because it was going to be on under the foundation of the building on the wall. So we can't put it that close to the sidewalk. And uh, when Matt uh, Lauer wanted to do a dinosaur thing, oh, we got a, a butt print down in St. George. You might want to go down there and do that. So they did this big thing. And uh, the, the woman, the volunteer coordinator, who actually was the one in the show, she was asked five times, where's the butt print? And never pointed it out. <laughs> I'm watching it in Salt Lake. I'm going, it's right there. Show him. And nope, never came well, out. Surely it must, must be a popular thing. Can people see the butt print now? Oh, yeah. yeah right. It's it's Good. there as well as a replica. You know, we did detailed photogrammetry. You know, we've got a lot of data recording that thing because it, it's pretty special. Yeah, when is. you said when you said there's all these layers, does that mean there'd be a layer from five years ago, and then the river would come and wash over and fill in that layer, and then there'd be another layer on top of that? So you're talking well, about this was on the shore of a lake, right? And uh, this this sandbar sequence was as the lake was first forming, right? Uh, and we have tracks we can follow this sandbar sand bed laterally, and we can see where it just drops off into a deeper part of the lake. And that's where we got the first identified dinosaur swim tracks. Right. Andrew Milner discovered these. You should talk to Andrew sometime. He's a remarkable gentleman. But uh, the swim tracks, all the paleo current data shows that these are long, short currents going one direction. And the vast majority, you know, 99% of the, sw the swim tracks or floundering tracks are going the other way. So picture these smaller animals, uh, growl adders, coelophysoids, you know, coelophysis like animals stepping off into deep water all of a sudden and all of a sudden the currents are trying to pull them away so they're struggling and kicking making these swim marks uh so you can literally see marks. you can see the animal walking along and then the water is a little higher Drops and it off, starts yeah. kicking so you had some ideas and i remember talking to you years ago because i put this on the big uh, fossil map that i drew you know and that something like a dilophosaur uh Eating yeah, much earlier, ten million years. Yeah, ten earlier, million earlier. So that's the ichnofauna. We'll, we'll define that mm -hmm. in a second. But, but were they? You know, I had this vision when I talked to you that these dinosaurs were down there, basically at maybe a spawning fishing event or something. Or, I mean, much like uh, you know, bears and salmon. Yeah, one of the things you know, as we you know worked on the site, we realized that you know there's almost no evidence of herbivorous dinosaurs down there, which is puzzling because we know they're in these rocks or tracks of these animals associated with the sand dune environments further away from the lake at about the same time. So we know they're out there, you know, somewhere. Uh, but why is it only theropods there? And and we discovered across the road, in part of what will be the site, but what we now interpret as fish nests. And this lake mm. is full of fossil fish. I like fossil fish quite a bit. I and we like get that. These big lepidotes armor scale they're related to gars these things are like two three foot long i mean big schools of these things are very abundant and uh you know they had a chain mail like gar scales of enameloid covered scales uh and they were fish nests you know right there next to the sandbar ah. and i'm figuring you know during the spawning season 
I've been up at the Bear Lake Migratory Bird Refuge, seeing carp spawning about 10 feet off the shore so that there's bodies, you know, just wiggling above the water surface because they're in such a mad rush and eagles are just picking them up. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, they're, they're doing their business. And I figured these dinosaurs had developed behavior. So seasonally, during the mating season of the Lepidotes, making these big, you know, meter wide fish nests in the sand. These things are just walking out there and picking them off. And when we find their teeth, and we have bones and teeth associated with this site, which is unusual, the teeth are big, long things, and there's wear down the front back of the carina. You know, these are two and a half inch long teeth along the serrated edges, front and back, all the way to the gum line. And I interpret this as by, you know, the teeth going through the chain mail, enamel on enamel. Oh, they're fish-eating like teeth. Fish-eating teeth. Yeah. Yeah, and we see the same wear on spinosaurus. Uh, which is a, which is interesting. A fish-eating dinosaur. <laughs> Are there any coprolites? There's lights? a lot more work to be done there, too, you know. Uh, have you found I mean, any coprolites? Well, I thought we did. <laughs> but uh, and brought Karen Chin in, uh, you, know, yeah. you know, the queen of coprolites. But as it turned out, uh, as we started studying these things, the pattern of these tubes of fish debris material were meter or so long and spaced every meter or so. Turns out they're ripped up algal mats with fish material right, in them right. that are rolling up. So they look like people are just rolling cigarettes up and laying them on the shore. Meter so long this is cigarettes. through the turbidity of the water causes the right. algae During a mats. big storm. Yeah, right. big storm event, ripping algae off the, right. the bottom and of then the it lake. And then it rolls into And it rolls tubes. up into these things. And we're probably seeing the distance between these are related to the water depth and the, and the wave height. Right. Uh, during the this this it's these storm crazy intervals. what you can find from from this oh. oh it's an amazing sight it's just there's so much to do there uh still and in the region you know this is one site we've been going out and have found hundreds of other track sites in these rocks you know jim associated with this lake system talking to you i just i had this weird ray troll kind of image uh being ray troll i guess that's what happens to you but I just suddenly envision Utah Raptor and that claw, not for kicking into Bar another doors. dinosaur. I, I pictured it down at the river, kicking <laughs> and picking off, you know, fish and having a fish stuck on its claw, you know. <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't doubt, you know, the Utah Raptor level. We have no big carnosaurs at that level. We have them below. They could the be fishing level. with that and, claw. And it's in a big lake marsh system. I mean, you know, we have lots of, and we have semionotids, except they're not giant ones, they're little ones. But we have spiny sharks and uh, lungfish and things. So I, I have no doubt that they were taking advantage of, I think dinosaurs took advantage, you know, theropods took advantage of fish all the time. You know, I mean, who would ever looked at the skeleton of a bear and think these things use fish, you know, as right. an important part of their diet? You know, the, there's no morphologic feature that says, oh, this is a fish eater in a bear. These guys actually have fit, features that suggest fish eating you know uh as, as part of their life they're also probably taking down pro sauropods yeah but no utah raptor i think it it did all kinds of stuff you know we can't we can't pigeonhole these things in too much but even down in the saint george area zion you know there are trackways you know in the early jurassic that show gregarious behavior in theropods where they're all walking together same distance apart from each other and they slow down and speed up and turn at the same moments. You know, those animals are walking together. There's not random tracks that happen to be parallel. It's parallel to the shore. These animals were together walking. These are adults. Wow. 
cool. of, of these big, you know, theropods like what we get in the, you know, the uh, Whitmore site at St. George. So that site was discovered around the year 2000 and the the center was open. When, when did the museum open there? About 2005. It was discovered then. Lightning speed. Lightning speed for something like that. I've been involved in preserving a number of sites over my career. I mean, it's a big part of my job as state paleontologist and even before that. And 10 years is to get a museum from concept to breaking ground is, is doing really good. Five years for that place wow. is lightning fast. Wow. wow. And it's been real successful. One of the most successful venues in St. George. Oh, uh, so it's, you know, it's bringing in, you know, in cash, you know, it's a small place. It only charge like five bucks to go into it. Brilliant. You know, so it covers all their expenses. That's cool. That's science. Science is good for the economy, man. Oh, yeah. There's been something like seven conferences down there that because of that site, tour groups. It's because it turns out it's a really convenient spot for uh, international tour groups coming from Las Vegas to stop at the track site before moving on to Zion. That's a good lunch spot. Great, great. <laughs> Perfect. So you say you're a fish guy. Uh, looking through your uh, resume, which is extensive and mind-blowing, the number of scientific papers, you did a paper on ratfish. Yeah, well, fairly recently, yeah. <laughs> Let's raise, raise fish spirit animal. Uh, it's my spirit oh, yeah. animal. I had to bring it up, sorry. But uh, I know it's not as glamorous as a Utah raptor, but... Or Zuni ceratops, or you know Diablo ceratops, but ratfish eggs—they get some respect. Hey, we're working down in Mesa Verde, you know, at the top of the Point Lookout. I, I had known this for years, and I've done a lot of work in Mesa Verde over the years. That uh, if you go to some of their viewpoints, those were beach sands in the Cretaceous, and they're full of fish jaws, shark teeth, ammonites, anisarmid shells. This is the beach rack. Right at the overlooks. You just stand in there. And it's like, you look at the rocks. They're full of fossils. Wow. Kind cool. of looking over at the archaeologic cliff dwellings. Well, up in the beach rack, they found two chimerid egg cases. Hmm. Wow. And they're diagnostic. I mean, they, yeah. you know, they look like they're rhino chimera egg cases, but there's no evidence of rhino chimerids in the Western interior. So I think it's, I you know, you shouldn't go that far, you know, at this point. But you know, those egg cases are diagnostic and one very well preserved, complete. Well, speaking for the ratfish community, we thank you for doing that, taking the time to do that paper, sir. Oh, it's, it's a neat thing. I was I was blown away when we first found it. I thought it was plant at first. Like, what is this? <laughs> so you've also uh, described an armored dinosaur, the Gastonia. A few. I'm a actually few. hoping to do three more before I call it a day. <laughs> but uh, I don't know, five or six I've named, I think, among armored dinosaurs. But uh, yeah, Gastonia is my favorite. I mean, there's no doubt. Uh, it was the first well-preserved holocanthid ankylosaur ever found. And are Certainly they Jurassic, Cretaceous, the Late Cretaceous? Uh, early Cretaceous. In fact, we're now pretty sure this beds are Valanginian. So it's a bit older than Polacanthus in Britain. Um, well, what uh, I like now about some sense. Gastonia is its name for an artist friend of mine. Yeah, Rob Gaston. Yeah. And Rob, so you know Rob. Yeah, yeah. Rob, one of my favorite people. I mean, he's been a, a big part of much of what i've done he's uh, an artist uh but he's also a fossil hunter and he found what was named after him then the gastonia and you described it you were the one 
How many di- yeah. how many dinosaur species in genera? Rob Gaston's a co-author on Utah Raptor initial oh, description. Okay. Really? Well, wait, yeah. I have a real quick question about the armored dinosaurs. Do you think that they're they develop their armor in response to animals like the Utah Raptor or more larger theropods, you know, bigger jaws and bigger uh, predators? Well, Gastonia and uh is probably the most spiny armored dinosaur ever found. I mean, it's covered with these big knife-like plates that were going down its tail, uh, big spines on its back and its shoulder area. Uh, you know, it's it's way spinier than than most ankylosaurs. Used the blades going down its tail as its weapon, not a club. Uh, and basically lived with the Utah raptor. Oh. And it's the most common plant-eating animal in those beds. So I'm figuring it was uh, certainly... Uh, uh, having to deal with Utah raptor on a regular basis. There are a lot of Utah raptors now. You need to have spiky deterrent rather than a boring club to to deter an animal that's fast and agile and can run 30, oh, yeah. 40 miles it, an hour. Gastonia is definitely not fast. Mm. It's got ridiculously short this distal parts of its legs. So, you know, it's not fast. It's got great forelimbs for maneuvering its butt around by pivoting on the on the uh, femurs, which, you know, the hind legs are pretty long. But the forelegs are short, but very muscular. And it's probably just shifting its body around to keep that tail pointed toward oh, whatever oh, is oh, messing yeah. with it. And it probably also hunkered down. This thing was hunkered down on the sediment, whipping that tail around. It'd be very difficult to turn it over. <laughs> well, I just had a real quick question before I asked the other question is, uh, sure. how, many, how many dinosaur species have you named, Jim? It's, uh, you know, you a fair number I'm a senior author on, but many I'm a you know, co-author, yeah. including animals but I named. Of, you know, you know, all together. I like to bring in smart people, yeah. you know, to make me look good. <laughs> yeah. But uh, basically, I'm up to 23, and my goal is three more armored dinosaurs, make it up to 26. Well, you're right up in the major leagues there of dinosaur namers. That's that's so cool and it's easy in Utah. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's There's easy lots in Utah. Of discoveries. The dinosaur capital of the world. I love it. Well, hey Jim, if you could time travel, you know where I'm going with this. <laughs> What time period would you like to go back to, and what would you want to see, man? Well, I would definitely like to go back to the, the early Cretaceous, and I'd have to pick an interval, you know. Uh, <laughs> so it would be the, you know, probably at Utah Raptor Ridge, which is the official geographic name now, where we got the big Utah nice. Raptor block, and just witness, you know, did those things get trapped in there as a pack, or is it just random, the population? in the region was structured that way and they came in. Uh, you know, I, I think 50 years will know the answer. Hmm. Unfortunately, I can't, I'm not in a position, I, I feel comfortable with it, but I can't prove it. In science, we have a little higher standard, uh, you know, but we have a lot more fun doing discussions like this or sitting around the campfire, uh, you know, that make this part of the most fun career you can possibly have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cool. I'll bet you the imagination around the campfire with uh, some brew must be amazing. The discussions you have. Oh yeah, that's how we came up. I came up with that Star Trek novel. Oh, that's right. You're a Star oh, wait, Trek what? novel writer. Yeah. What? 
He wrote a Star Trek uh, novel. A lot, but I, I'm a lousy writer. I'm too dyslexic. I write a lot, but it's like pulling teeth. Is it Next Generation or is it the original series? Original series. Bach meets T-Rex. Oh, wow. I wrote that scene. Wow. <laughs> and it happens that's, in Utah. That's brilliant. <laughs> well, Jim, your contributions to paleontology and geology are really impressive. And, you know, you currently have 197 publications on ResearchGate, and it's astounding. Well, I'd be careful with that stuff. They grab in other people with my name. Oh, okay. It's close to 100. It's around 100. All right. All right. Uh, so, but, yeah. Be be careful for sure. I, mean, I don't count abstracts. Oh, okay, all right. Yeah. Well, how about I say that um, you currently have many, many, many publications <laughs> on ResearchGate, and it's astounding. But your prolific achievements could also be daunting to a student just starting out, as it represents untold hours of work. Now, because publishing your research is so important to the scientific community, what advice can you give to a student just starting out that will ease their fear? of needing to have many publications in order to have a successful career? Well, if, if you're going to describe dinosaurs, write, you know, publish and get your thoughts out to the public in a form that counts for the long term, you know, keep a naturalist notebook. Oh. Sketch what you see. Uh, describe what you see. Distill the world around you through your mind's eye onto paper. I mean, I wish I had had that advice early on. I've noticed some of the paleontologists I respect most in this world, you know, were keeping notebooks from day one. Edward Dinker Cope, you know, was famous right. for the things he was doing when he was just a wee lad. And I guarantee, you know, you get kids writing, just keeping a notebook, a diary right. of their thoughts. They'll be much better when it, come, when it comes time to uh, moving ahead. And I'm dyslexic. Writing for me is like, Long teeth. I pity the four editors that deal with me, including my <laughs> my assistants who have to read my stuff. Uh, you know, it really is like pulling teeth. But you got if you don't publish, doesn't count. Yeah, brilliant, <laughs> brilliant so, advice. Let me. So do you do you sketch and you have all these notebooks? I used to when I was in high school, junior high. I was taking extra art classes. You know, I was in like three different. Uh, Art classes. I got rid of all my study halls, and I was just doing art classes. And then they tried to get me to go into commercial art, you know, and introduce me to people that drew refrigerators <laughs> and Sears catalogs and stuff. And it's like, if that's the only future I got, forget it. You know, I was interested in science, too. So, you know, they trying to, you know, show me how I could be a success in the art world uh, just repelled me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's too bad, but uh, and it, it really is too bad because I, you know, I was actually pretty good at that age, and and I did it all the time. It's always drawn. But you've kept all your notebooks from over the years. You say, you know, do journals. I've got a, I've got a lot of that stuff. Yeah, and you know, of course, field notebooks and sketches. I'm, I've always, you know, uh, when I describe a a rock column, I like it to reflect the rock column I'm seeing, which nowadays. Uh, Stratigraphy, they, they code all these uh, uh, symbols for coarseness of material and whatnot. So you almost need a, a, you know, a, you know, a magic decoder ring to figure out what you're looking at. Yeah. And I, I like to draw these things so that actually if you go out in the field and look at it, oh, yeah, there's that bed and there's that bed. Uh, so I have a little bit different take on it. And it's not always smiled upon by uh, other uh, geologists. Oh, you should be doing it this way. But then no one can relate to it. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm a lot more outreach oriented in terms of my work. 
uh, don't ignore me, but, uh, you know, please, you know, make use of what I do. <laughs> well, it's been an amazing contribution that you've made to our knowledge of, uh, of dinosaurs and the prehistoric past. And uh, I really want to come to Utah, man. I really want to. Really Me too. I'll tell you. Me too. Hosting the Mesozoic Terrestrial Ecosystem Conference in 2023. I've been trying to get it here for 35 years. Finally getting it. And we're going to do a five-day across Utah complete tour of the Mesozoic. That's going to be pretty extraordinary field trip. Paleo nerds can sign up now. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get that info on your page. Wow. Uh, there is actually a web page on Utah Friends of Paleo uh, about it, but you know we're not people aren't registering yet. Abstracts aren't due for another year. <laughs> well, it's been fantastic, and uh, I love diving down into all your videos on YouTube. Uh, just search up your name, and uh, they're there, and it's just brilliant, and it's an honor, an honor to have met you, Jim. Well. It's a small pond, I know. <laughs> you mean it's called uh, Lake what? Lake Whitmore? Lake Whitmore. Lake Whitmore. That's the small yeah. pond. Yeah. It's about as big as Lake Erie. Wow. That's... We have coelacanths in there that are two to three meters. Yeah, I'm going to call you up on a separate <laughs> uh, separate time here and just talk fish with you, too. So all oh, those cool I'm, fish. I'm becoming addicted to ponds and marshes and lakes. John Foster and I have a paper on fish puke coming out soon. <laughs> fish puke. Yeah, from a Morrison Lake. All right. I, All right. On that note, I will look forward to that, sir. Fish yeah. puke in the future yeah. with Jim Kirkland. Thanks, Jim. It's been a total blast talking to you today, man. I really, I've really enjoyed it. And you guys are doing some good stuff. Oh, thank well, you, thanks. Jim. Thanks for listening to our show, Jim. And it's a true honor to have you on, man. Stay cool. Right. Hey, you too. Talk to you soon. Enjoy. Well, he was a fun guy. Yeah, he, he was. Uh, he was great fun talking about Utah Raptor and swimming dinosaurs and all that cool stuff, man. Yeah, I, you know, I read an article just prior to this. I didn't. We didn't get to talk about it about these sauropod tracks. They said they found these sauropod tracks only walking on their front feet, and these things being so massive and huge, that's nearly impossible. And then they figured out, oh, these things are swimming. And the front feet tracks uh, on the trackway are them pushing themselves across the bottom as they're floating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was the case with the dinosaurs out there, St. George, too, the ones that like you would see them walk in and then they start kicking around. But yeah, we didn't actually get into the ichnofauna right. footprint things. Footprints, they identify, at, they give it a different scientific name for these ones, yeah. but they don't know exactly which dinosaur. Made right. Footprint. So there's two of them. There, there's Eubrontes, E U B R O N T E S, and Graylater, G R A L L A T O R. These are imaginary creatures that create these footprints because they don't have the skeleton dead right next to this imprint in the sand to 100% prove that it came from. Uh, a Coelophysis well, or I, a uh, Dilophosaurus. But they do say. Yeah, they do say, well, it's most likely made from this creature because... Something like this. Uh, but they're not imaginary, yeah. dude. Man, it's... Well, yes, they no, are. No, they're they not. Are. They Something made those tracks. It's a thing. I know, it's but testable. they're imaginary. But we don't know who yeah, did. We know, because there they are. How do you know it wasn't? How do you know it wasn't a guy with one of those Bigfoot carvings? You know, stamping in the in the mud. This is how crazy QAnon stuff starts happening, man. <laughs> You're not going to apply that kind of reasoning to this. Okay, all right. But what I'm saying is, is that okay? They're not imaginary. They are suggest. 
I just think it's weird that they just call them by a name. Like, oh, that's a gray later. Well, after... Why can't you just call them a, can, a footprint of a supposed theropod? Well, they give it a, a genus name or whatever so they know what they're talking about. So, And you can measure. You can. Right. And we'll have to have a footprint specialist on the show sometime yeah, yeah. to really Let's go through that. that. Because you can identify individuals by the evidence they leave, you know. So. Because, you know, there are human uh, footprints that are, you know, hundreds of thousands of years old. They say, well, that's an early hominid. Uh, they call them hominid. They don't invent. They don't invent a a species of human. Yeah, we're going down the trackway rabbit hole here, aren't we? There's there's that. <laughs> we're going down the wrong yeah, track. Yeah, yeah. Right? Oh wait, yeah, that's right. I I get that. Hey, okay. You know what? Let's get an expert. Let's get an expert. Let's call it. You know, okay. a ventriloquist and an artist can only do so much. You know, but yeah, we try, Dave. Yeah. We try. Yeah. I try harder. <laughs> <laughs> what do you work for Avis now? <laughs> All right, dude. But hey, uh, it's been fun, Dave, as always. It's uh, glad to be back here with you doing this thing. And uh, we got some more guests coming up. And as always, oh, we do. Oh, you we know, do. we got to look to the past to know what's going on now and see what's happening, going to happen in the future. That's so, so poetic. Right? I, I tried to do that, Dave. All right. Well, I'm signing off from drought-stricken Ojai, California, where raindrops were a distant memory. Yeah, dude, we are in such totally different worlds. I'm up here in the... Uh, just You're in an the, atmospheric river, they're calling it, right? And I'm in the mouth of the river here, facing it daily, and it's going on. But it is winter in southeast Alaska, and it is doing what it always does here in lovely southern southeast. It is raining, raining, And that's, raining. what, 70 degrees in sunshine? No, it's about 45 degrees and just rain, 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 constant rain. Open your window so I can listen. There it is, you see. And it's great. It's wow. a great day to be out in the studio, and that's where I'm going to go back to. I'm going to keep drawing that All right. plankton. The plankton is calling, Dave. All, All right. right. Over and out, man. It's a pleasure. Over and out, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time.